Perhaps you've noticed, as our country becomes more racially diverse and culturally diverse from people of many nations, that the names that you hear are different from maybe some of the names you grew up with. When you go into a store, you often see the the, uh, clerk behind the counter, a man or a woman with a name tag, and you say, how exactly do you pronounce that? Mashembanu. Oh, there we go. I'm sorry, and how exactly do you pronounce yours? Shularika. Never met a Shularika. It's kind of fun. It's, It's part of the joy of knowing people. Well, you may have experienced, as you've sat in various churches or listened to various people speak from the Bible, that sometimes when people read in the Old Testament the word the Lord, they, they pronounce it a little more accurately. What it actually was written was Jehovah, or even more accurately, the way it was probably pronounced is Yahweh. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, they're the same. And so today, if I use the word Yahweh, if you're new to that and haven't heard it, it's because it means the Lord, Jehovah. That was his name as he gave it to his people back in the day. We're reading today from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. It's called the book of Hebrews because it was written to Jewish people in the first century who had come to believe that Jesus was the great Messiah promised by the Hebrew Bible. But they took a lot of heat from their families for that, And eventually, they took a lot of heat from the Roman government for that. And therefore, this book was written to encourage them to have faith despite all the pressure. Hebrews 11 that we've been working through is a whole chapter of people in ancient times who kept their faith in the one true God despite a lot of pressure. And today, as I say, we come to verse 28 and 29. By faith, he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn, the destroyer, I'm sorry, of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Yahweh had sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's answer was, who in the world is Yahweh? And he was about to find out. And so Yahweh, the Lord God, responded with a series of disasters on that great and ancient nation that increased in their severity over time. He sent nine plagues over a time probably of about six months, that just laid waste this land of the pyramids. Now, even though these great plagues came, the king still dug in and refused to let the Israelite slaves go and worship God in the desert. So now we come to what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 4. God said to Moses, tell Pharaoh this, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go, but you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. I'm going to kill the eldest male in every family in Egypt, child. From Pharaoh's palace, down to the lowest slave, down to the prisoner in a dungeon. And to punctuate it, 
the eldest of all the cattle will die. Now think about this, this threat that hung over these people. Think about the parents that were infertile for a long time and it just wished and hoped and prayed to have a child. And now they have a boy. They're going to lose that boy. Think about all the parents whose great hopes were in the fact that their son, at least their eldest son, would carry their name and the family name wouldn't vanish from the earth. Think about elderly parents who had a son in their late years and now believe that, isn't this great? We will finally have someone who can take care of us as we get older. Now, not only were the Egyptians themselves informed, but God informed the Israelites that this judgment was coming. And furthermore, he informed them this. Although the Jews had suffered with the Egyptians in the first four plagues, that is when water turned to blood, when God sent frogs, when he sent lice, when he sent flies, all those things are annoying and uncomfortable. And when the water became blood, they had to dig their own wells to get any water at all. But all those things were largely annoyances. But God had spared the Jews from the last five plagues. If he had let them go through these final five plagues that led up to nine without distinguishing between the Jews and the Egyptians, it would have been devastating. Plague number five that Pharaoh had resisted. All the cattle come down with a fatal disease. A huge financial loss for the entire nation. Plague six boils on the skin of every person. Enormous human suffering and pain. Plague seven, hail. Hail that falls and levels the crops and strips the trees and kills any animal or any person out in the field. So heavy was the hail. Plague number eight, the locusts that ate another set of crops that grew up a little later. Plague number nine, darkness so thick nobody could possibly move, which would have been a terrible psychological blow to the Jews. But these plagues I've just mentioned, five, six, seven, eight, nine, God distinguished between the Egyptians and his people, the Israelites, so they didn't have the plague. Pharaoh would send his messengers to the area of the Egyptians and these things were of the Israelites and these things were not happening there. The Jews were spared. But now this plague number 10, that was the disaster of disasters, worse than all the others combined, one would think the Jewish people had it hanging over their heads, too. You are going to lose the firstborn of every son in your houses as well, because the Jewish people are sinners against God, just like the Egyptian people. Now, the Jewish people heard this threat and they believed that it was true and they believed that they must prepare. So not only then did they believe the word of Moses that God was going to send this terrible judgment, but they believed the word of Moses when God told them how they could avoid that happening to them in their houses. So we first learned that the Israelite people believed that God's judgment was coming. And secondly, they believed in God's directions for how to escape that judgment. God told Moses exactly what they should do. Moses called all the couriers together and the couriers went out to all the people and explained it block by block, street by street, what they needed to do. Now, what God said they needed to do was a ritual. And that ritual was totally new and it was totally strange to them. 
It took faith for these people to believe that they should do this and that that would save them. What is it that God had asked them to do? Well, the very first thing God made clear is, listen, there is only one way to save your children. You cannot save your children by holding them tight. You cannot save your children by praying hard. You can save your children by only one means, and this is it. Here are the specific directions. On the 10th day of the month, you are to pick a certain kind of lamb, a certain age, a pure lamb with no blemishes, and keep him separate. On the 14th day of the month, at twilight, between the time when the sun goes down and abject darkness falls, you're to slay this lamb or this goat. You're to catch his blood in a basin. You're to take not only any old plant, but a certain kind of plant that I tell you, a hyssop plant, which has small leaves, dip it in the blood and splash it on the walls. You don't splash it just anywhere you want. You splash it on the door. You don't splash it anywhere in the door you want. You splash it on the post on the right and on the post on the left and on the lintel on the top. And then when night falls, you do not leave your house. Instead, inside, you eat that lamb roasted. Do not break a single bone of its body. And eat bread. But eat bread made without yeast. And eat herbs. But don't eat just any herbs. Eat a certain kind of bitter herbs that taste quite like that. And then when you eat, here's how you're to dress. You may walk around barefooted in your house usually. But on this night, you will wear your sandals as you eat. You may usually let your robes just flow free to relax, but on this night, you will tie your belt around your robe as if you're going to walk. And on this night, those of you who have a walking staff, you eat with the staff in one of your hands. Really? Why? I mean, God, why, why can't we do it a different way? There should be many ways to avoid your judgment. Why can't we promise to pray half the night that you would do that? Why can't we draw a picture of Pharaoh and then burn it? Why can't we chant, we love Jehovah, we love Jehovah, we love Yahweh, ten times? Why can't we do anything but what you said? Why, for instance, God, would we eat bread without yeast? It tastes so much better with yeast. And God... Why these herbs? We can think of a lot of vegetables that taste a lot better than these bitter herbs you told us about. And why, when we take a lamb or a goat, do we have to take a male? Doesn't God love females? And then, Lord, why do we have to stay inside? And why in the world do we have to dress like that all during the meal? But we read that the people had faith. This is what God said. There must be a good reason We don't want the judgment to come, so we will follow God's way of rescue. And we read in Exodus 12 that the people, when they heard what they were to do, bowed their heads and worshipped. They did as they were commanded. And then came the twilight. The lambs were slain. The blood was splattered. The meal was prepared. The doors were shut tight. And now came judgment. It is the spring of the month. It is the month of Abib. Abib is actually a Canaanite word that means barley grain newly ripened. 
It is midnight. Blood has dripped and dried from the doorposts and the lintels of the Jews. And now the angel of death goes on its mission of terror. Up and down the narrow streets of the poor. Into the prisons. Into the middle class homes. Into the villas of the rich. Into the palaces of the royals. Parents are cradling their babies because they've heard of what might happen and they've seen something terrible happening nine times before. Pharaoh, doubtless, has his elite guards all around the bedroom of his son and all inside the bedroom of his son. But the messenger of death cannot be stopped by any door or any guards. And so house by house, he wastes the sons of this Egyptian home and of the land of the pyramids. And then comes the death cry. First just a house away, and then several houses away, and then down the street, and then all across Egypt is a cry. And we read in Exodus 12, Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt. Here's the friend, the phrase. For there was not a house without someone dead. But God passed over the houses of the Jews. And as one writer put it, that night in Egypt, in the home of the Jews, lambs died in the place of sons. Because of this, God instituted the Passover meal to be observed every year in memory of this. And a huge change took place. Till now, among Jewish culture, the new year had always started in October, in autumn. But tonight, because this was the beginning of Israel's life as a nation, from now on, the month of Abib will begin the calendar. That is our month of March into April. And so the very next day, when they woke up, they flung open their doors. They met at the city of Ramses, and the Jews marched out of Egypt. As they marched, they crossed the Egyptian border and leave it. As I say, they all pass the town of Ramses, which they, in their slave labor, had helped to build. They congregated there. And under the shadow of its walls is where they marched out. The Bible says that 600,000 men, that is not people, adult males, marched out. Most of these men had wives. Most of them had children. And it's been calculated that there was a total of 2 million people leaving. I don't know if I've ever seen a crowd of 2 million. But I have been in a crowd of 1 million and I will never forget it. When President Barack Obama was inaugurated the first time, we had friends who lived in Washington, D.C., about a two-miles walk from the Washington Mall. We asked if we could come down. We did, and the four of us walked down to the mall and stood. At first, it was crowded. Then it was real crowded, like you would have at a stadium. But we were not prepared for the magnitude of that crowd. And by the time that inauguration was gone, And people were wending their way through the streets of D.C. You remember, the streets of D.C. are wide streets. 
These streets going out in all directions from the mall were so packed, I was walking beside Verna. I could not keep beside her from the press of the crowd. It was like a conveyor belt of heads moving in all directions. This is a single one million people. Think of this two million people freed in the course of a day. They halt the first night at a place called Sukkoth, which means booths, that is makeshift tents. Whatever they could use, they put them up and they slept under the stars. And again, up the next day. Now, not long afterwards, they came, what the Bible calls, to the edge of the desert. And the road straight ahead leads north to the land of the Philistines. Ah, the Philistines. These were a fierce people, a warlike people. They would war with the Egyptians, and the Egyptians could hardly withstand them at times in their history. And so God, knowing that the Philistines would chew up these two million people alive, he said, I want you now to turn south. So they did. Not directly back home, but sort of southeast. And it was apparently there when they turned south that God began to lead them visibly. He began to appear to them in the form of a cloud. Not just any cloud across the sky horizontally, but a vertical cloud, a pillar of cloud, the Bible calls it, in which God was clearly present. And then during the nighttime, the fire of God inside that cloud would show itself and glow and lead the way where they were to go. In this way, it was much like what the American slaves experienced. When a slave would flee, it was almost always during the night, and they did not have a map, and they had never been north where there was freedom awaited, but they were told that if we look at the sky, there was a certain constellation called the Big Dipper. And if you knew the Big Dipper, you could calculate which way was north, and that guided them. It was called the drinking gourd, because it looked like a drinking gourd, to guide them to the north. God instead himself moved with the people, unlike the unmoving constellation, so they would know where to go. <clears throat> now, Pharaoh, of course, had sent his spies to watch the advance of his had-been slaves. And when they turned south, he realized, oh my goodness, these idiots don't know what they're doing. They're lost and confused. Let's get them back. And so out he sends his army. You remember, perhaps, from past weeks together, is, I mean, Egypt was the longest-lasting nation ever in the world. It had already been for more centuries than anybody knew. And right now, at this stage, it was at the absolute height of its power ever before or ever since. And in particular, it was at its power regarding its military and the reason was the technological advances of its chariots and of how to use them. The Israelites could possibly hear the rumbling of the horses and chariots before they ever saw them. And when they started to see them, it very well probably came in the form of the sun glinting against all those spears. The Israelites go faster and they come to a place where they realize, oh my, we're in a cul-de-sac. To the north of them were impassable hills. To the south, impassable hills. In front of them was the Sea of Reeds 
in the Hebrew, or as the Greek Old Testament translates it, the Red Sea, because of the red coral in the water, an impossible barrier in three directions, and behind them was nothing but death. Nighttime falls. God in that cloud places himself between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Only this time, light shines from only one side of the pillar of cloud. The light of fire shines over the Israelites. Abject darkness comes over the Egyptian army that must camp overnight. And as night falls and the Egyptians are in darkness, a strong east wind begins to blow. My guess is no one had ever seen a wind that powerful before, and no one had ever seen a wind directed that narrowly before. And thus, in 1956, the Hollywood director Cecil B. DeMille tried to capture on screen what happened that night in his blockbuster movie, The Ten Commandments. It was an epic film. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards. It was one of the most successful financial movies in history, still remains so. And at that time, the parting of the sea scene was considered to be the most difficult special effect ever captured on the screen. It took six months to make happen and to film. And yet what the Jews saw doubtless made what we see on that movie look silly. And as those mighty walls rose above them on either side, and as the ground not only was free of deep water, but through the force of the wind, like putting your hands under a hand dryer in a laboratory, totally dry, on dry land, those people crossed and the Jews escaped. That is the story of these two verses. What does Hebrews, and thus God, want us to learn from it. Three lessons I will take. Number one, true faith benefits not just yourself, but other people. Think about Moses' faith here. Moses was used by God to save the lives of 600,000 men of about 600,000 wives plus their many children. And thus, he guaranteed the lives, not only those people who left, but the lives of all the children that would be born to those people who left in future generations. We say it's by faith that he did this and benefited the other people. Regarding the Passover, here's what verse 27, 28 says. It says that Israel believed God regarding the coming judgment, They believe God, recording how to escape that judgment. But actually, in verse 28, it doesn't say that Israel believed. Here's what it says. By faith, he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so the destroyer would not touch the firstborn. He believed it. But because he believed it, God used his faith to convince them And this whole nation of Jews believed it. Had he not believed, they never would have. And so this transfer of his faith to become their faith is shown in the first words of the two verses we've just read. Verse 27. By faith, he, that is Moses, did such and such. Verse 28. By faith, they, that is the people, 
did such and such. Do you get that? Moses' faith became theirs. The translation by Dr. Beck captures it nicely, I think. Verse 28, when he writes, By faith, Moses salivated the Passover and put the blood on the doorpost to keep him who destroyed the firstborn from touching his people. The idea is that true faith often will spread and become the faith of others. We see that elsewhere in the Bible. Surely you remember the story in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Jesus is in a house. The crowd is so thick, no one outside can get in. But outside, on a bed, on a litter, being carried by his friends, is a man who is paralyzed. His friends decide to climb up on the roof, flat roofs at the time, probably made of thatch and mud, and they tear away enough space of the roof in order by ropes to let the man down in the litter because they can't get that way inside any other way. And the Bible does not say, when Jesus saw the man's faith, Jesus said. The Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, that is the faith of the friends, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Your personal faith is the most helpful thing you can ever do for anyone around you. Parents, if you're good parents or good grandparents, doubtless you care about your children's education. You care about their health. You care about their sports abilities or their their recreations or their friendships. But your own spiritual life, cultivating your own relationship with God, building your own faith in God, in the Bible, in church, in prayer with others, is far and away the most helpful thing you can ever do for those children. Therefore, by all means, be helpful to the people you love with your hands. Sacrifice yourself for them. But especially, claim God's promises by faith for the people you love. Keep praying for others who are too weak physically or too weak spiritually to pray for themselves. And God may make your faith their faith. The second great lesson of this passage is this. It is, it is not only, as we said, that true faith of one person can become the faith of another, but true faith believes not just the Bible's good news, but also the Bible's bad news. This is a difficult one for modern people to grasp, but it's so clear in our passage. True faith believes not just the Bible's good news, but also, it's bad news. This passage refers back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, which talks about the angel of death. Verse 28, the destroyer. The question comes then, who exactly was this destroyer who went through the streets of Egypt killing these babies? Who was ultimately the destroyer? The surprising answer is Jehovah himself. Yahweh was the destroyer. He says in Exodus 12, 12, this is Yahweh speaking. On that same night, predicting what he's going to do, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn. Now, then when it says that he said to the destroyer, when I see the blood, I will tell the destroyer not to enter your house. That could be one of two things. It could be an angel sent from God, but doing exactly what God had bidden him. Or it could be, as happens a number of places in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ, who is also God, acting on behalf of his Father. 
But in either case, Jehovah God is responsible for this. And so a theologian, R.C. Sproul, once asked the question, people always say, you need to be saved. We ought to ask the question, who do I need to be saved from? And the answer is, you need to be saved from God himself. Because God is holy and you're a human. And we humans are all sinful from the day of our birth. And we need a salvation from him. And we need to believe that that trouble was hanging over us if we're ever to understand and accept and benefit from the good news of the gospel that is the answer to that trouble. God knows that it is hard for us to understand that God would punish people for sin. God knows doubly that it is very difficult for modern people to believe that God would actually create a place called hell. That's why in the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, Verse 21, as God is talking about judgment he's going to bring on earth, he says, quote, The Lord will rouse himself to do his work, his strange work. He calls the work of judging strange because it's not primarily what he's interested in. What he's interested in primarily is that we honor him and glorify him, receive his gift of salvation by faith. Learn to repent and obey him and be forgiven and pardoned and celebrate him forever in heaven. But God has this, quote, strange work to do, and that is to show his holiness against those who never repent. This idea that God has a strange work of judgment to do, a bad news that we must believe as well as the good news, is is well illustrated in a recent hymn. Many of you will recall that there is a married couple by the last name of Getty, who've written any number of Christian hymns in the past 20 years. We sing them. They're sung all over the United States and Europe, at least. The Gettys have a song called In Christ Alone that is frequently called, uh, sung here on a Sunday morning in our sanctuary. And I've probably mentioned this before, but it bears repeating here. There's a line in the Getty song, Christ Alone, that says, Till on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath of God, his strange work. The Gettys were contacted by a major Christian denomination in the United States. It's a progressive denomination, a denomination that has drifted from the Bible inch by inch over the decades till finally much of it is not biblical, although they still read from the Bible and use biblical terminology and Christian jargon. They said, we would like to print your hymn in our hymnal. This would mean a great deal of money for the Gettys, for the copyright benefits of that. But there was one catch. They said, the denomination said, we love the song, but that line about till on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We'd like to change that to till on the cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Seems like a small change, doesn't it? But it's not a small change. It's because this denomination could not bring themselves to acknowledge the idea that a holy God would ever actually judge somebody in a place of hell, and that what Jesus was doing was taking God's wrath on himself instead of God pouring it out on us. No, no, no. Jesus died just to show us I'm even willing to suffer just to let you know how much I love you, but it has nothing to do with the anger of God against our sins. This is a denial of the very gospel. And the Israelites would never have been saved if they didn't grasp God is going to come. The angel of death is going to come to Egypt. We must be prepared. We must sprinkle the blood. 
Today, many people are willing to believe in heaven, but totally unwilling to believe in hell, although they learned of both from the same Bible. Today, many of us are welcome. We're welcoming God as a kind father, but we resist the notion that God is also a just and righteous judge. And as a result, someone who is hesitant to acknowledge that he has sickness is going to be hesitant to ask for medicine. Someone who is refusing to face that he has a fatal disease is going to refuse to submit to the surgeon's knife. And someone who is too proud to admit himself into God's hospital of the gospel is too proud to be admitted into heaven. These are the sobering words of the Bible that are meant to be both a scare and simultaneously an introduction. Because that night, doubtless, the Israelites felt the fear of what was going on, but they felt the confidence of the blood shielding them from the wrath of God that would rescue them totally. So coming to terms with God's bad news is necessary for the good news. The bad news is, as the book of Romans puts it, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. The bad news is, as Romans also says, the wages that sin pays is death. But the good news is that the free gift of God comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Without acknowledging the bad news, the good news is not for you. And so, as one writer put it, that night in Egypt, where there was no faith, no lamb's blood was sprinkled. And today, where there is no faith, Jesus' blood is not sprinkled. The third and final lesson we get from this passage is this. True faith always focuses on God as Savior. False faith focuses on imitating the actions of true believers. Let me say that again. True faith always focuses on God as Savior. False faith tends to focus on the actions of true believers. Israel, for instance, showed their faith, their focus was on God and faith in his salvation. They didn't know what the instructions pictured. They had no idea that God said, don't put yeast in your bread because yeast would become a picture of sin that spreads inside of us and infects us. They didn't know that the bitter herbs were meant to picture the bitterness of their own condition, not just the slavery of Egypt, but the curse of sin that had fallen upon us all as God's rebellious children. They didn't know that the, the lamb had to be a male because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be a man. They did not know that the lamb had to be a young lamb because Jesus Christ would never come to old age and gray hair. He would die young. They did not know that the death couldn't just occur, but that the blood must be sprinkled because the death of Christ must be applied to our hearts by faith and repentance. But they believed that what God said was God's way of salvation. And that night, as we say, lambs died in the place of sons. And on the cross of Calvary, God's son died in the place of God's lambs. Now the Egyptians tried to imitate this faith, and therefore their faith was fake. They looked at the Red Sea parting when they got up in the morning, and they said, whoa, well, if it can part for them, why not for us? 
And so into the Red Sea and its path they went. And yet their chariot wheels swerved and the mighty walls of water collapsed and the weight of the water crushed their bones and the water filled their lungs and the corpses of the Egyptian army washed up on the beach. People today are tempted to do the same things the Egyptians do. They look at Christians and they say, well, I'll be baptized and that will save me. Well, Christians take communion. I'll take the Lord's Supper somewhere. That'll save me. Christians are good and are tolerant toward others. I'll be good and I'll be tolerant of others. And yet, God's water will crush all of us who lack faith in God's way. That is, repentance from our sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And so we read that just like God sent the angel of death on that night, so Jesus said that at the end of time, God will send his angels in this manner from Matthew 13. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of God will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil, and they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's why in Christian services all across the world, when people sing the praises of Jesus Christ, they sing them with joy. Perhaps we close by listening to one of the lyrics from one of the songs that praise Jesus for his cross. This is an old time hymn. This is probably the kind of hymn you might hear sung in a little chapel, maybe a little chapel with only six pews on either side, a little place back in the country a place which is not sophisticated, it's not highly educated, and yet where there's people who grasp the truth. It's an old hymn called, When I See the Blood, I Will Pass Over You. And it goes like this. Christ, our Redeemer, died on the cross, died for the sinner, paid all his due. Sprinkle your soul with the blood of the Lamb, and he will pass, he will pass over you. And the chorus goes, When I see the blood, this is God talking, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. May the blood of Jesus Christ be in your heart by faith so that God on that great day will pass over you, lead you out of this world into the glories of the land of milk and honey. Would you please bow your heads and think about these things? Lord Jesus, we love the things the Bible says about you. We love how John called you the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We love how Paul called you Jesus who saves us from the coming wrath. And we love how the book of Colossians says that your Father have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has placed us into the kingdom of the Son of whom he loves. Father, I cannot grasp, and I doubt that the people in front of me can, the greatness of what you have rescued us from and of what you have rescued us to. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being that lamb. God, give us the faith. If anybody in the room is struggling to believe these things, if the idea of hell has called them to resist the notion of coming to Jesus Christ, 
If the idea of only one way of salvation that you've made clear is obnoxious when we'd rather think of multiple ways, God, would you give that person or those people the ability to humble themselves, embrace your salvation, receive your gift of eternal life, and rejoice in heaven. And now, may the grace of that very Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God who loves to rescue slaves from their slavery and sinners from their sin, may the Holy Spirit who applies the blood of Christ to our souls and saves us, may that blessed Holy Trinity be with each of you. Amen.